0: All right, welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata. I'm joined here by a good friend of mine and a past colleague named Clark. And uh, Clark and I are going to be talking today um, about autism and extreme behavior. I think extreme behavior is something that a lot of people think they've seen and haven't really. Um, I'm sure Clark and I have a very different definition of extreme behavior than the average person. Um, he and I have both worked in settings with like very violent um, students and clients um, for years. And in fact, um, Clark has even more experience than I do, in fact, quite a bit more. Um, and I kind of consider myself a bit of a specialist on this topic, and I would say Clark is more of a specialist. So I'm really excited to have him on the podcast, and uh, I think we're going to share some stories and experiences and some insights, and hopefully we can find this helps um, some of our audience, because as much as not every teacher has experienced this type of behavior, I think a large number of them will at some point see it. And I also think some of the lessons that we can learn from this type of behavior can be applied to other situations with students. And as well, it's a useful thing in our our toolbox as a teacher to know about and understand. So I'm going to go to Clark first and just uh, ask him to introduce himself and talk a little bit about how he got into this field, because he works full time in this field um uh just dealing with behavior and uh how he's liked that uh, experience so far
1: all right uh so yeah you know my name's clark i uh you know first got introduced to autism actually from uh, when i was on the wrestling team in high school Uh, i volunteered uh i'm pretty sure it was called jake's house we uh we did a christmas party and I had no idea going in. I knew nothing about autism and knew nothing about, you know, special needs or, you know, other disabilities. So I went in there completely blind and I had one of the best times ever. You know, since then, you know, I was just thinking, you know, this is something I can do. You know, um, I was never I was never the best student. I was always uh, a hard worker. So, you know, like, you know, when it came to school, I went, I did I did my ECE found it wasn't right for me. It wasn't exactly, you know, what I wanted to do. I moved over to CYW. I completed that. And then I got hired uh, pretty much, uh, you know, to, um, to work contracts in this field almost straight out the gate two weeks after I graduated. And I pretty much just jumped right into deep water working with autism every day since then. And I've just, you know, taken my on-the-job learning very seriously. I have always tried to connect with behavioral therapists, teachers, principals, parents, just learning everywhere. And through my work, I'm, you know, I I work everywhere. I'm at a hospital the one day. I'm doing a, you know, a community program the next. I'm in a shelter the other day. So I try to use everything I learn from all these different, you know, places around the GTA and then just kind of, you know kind of put everything together and, you know, try to see what works. Cause not, you know, when you meet a person with autism, that's all you've done is just meet a person with autism. Everyone has, you know, different solutions to what their needs are. So I I just try to learn everything I can and then just, you know, try to change my approach based on what they need from me.
0: Yeah. I, I love that you said that actually there. Uh, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine within this industry I find, especially when people are very new to working with people with autism, they come up with these like very like um, cookie cutter understandings of what autism is. You know, you can look up the DSM, the definition, and it's very, very vague on how we define someone who has autism or diagnose them. But then you can go on to all these like internet websites that'll give you like um, suggestions and advice for autistic kids. And it's often ultra specific and uh, deals with ultra specific symptoms, but you know uh the all the people i've met with autism their symptoms are so vastly different and if we look at like the the diagnostic uh criteria like it's just such a wide range you can have someone from being completely nonverbal, um uh, who needs help with everything in their life from toileting to brushing their teeth and you can also have within that same diagnosis someone who um seems like a fully functional adult human being, uh, with the only difference being that maybe they're a little socially awkward. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I always wonder if it's even fair that we have those as the same diagnosis. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Clark?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. You know, it's, uh, it's they, you know, I don't know if the solution is to like create more categories or to like, you know, get some of the people on the more extremes end of the spectrum and give them their own categories. But like, you know, go into what you said too. There's also the thing where two people can almost present the same, but it's almost like you have two identical cars with different engines going on under the hood. I'm currently working with, you know, an individual who, you know, is non-speaking, doesn't present like, you know, he, he understands what's going on around him, but, you know, we use a letter board to communicate. And let me tell you, he remembers everything. He can remember all my pet's their names he remembers how to spell my fiance's name he knows what car i drive and the model of it he knows he knows my plans he knows like everything if if he hears it he he remembers it right so it's uh it's it's definitely there's there's definitely a lot going on when it comes to you know the diagnoses and all of that because there's just so much to unravel and to and to discover when it comes to like seeing what's going on with these guys
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually a really cool story of the one you're talking about right there. I mean, we've both worked with nonverbal people before, and I've definitely been really often surprised at both what they know and don't know. And it's just such a, it's such a, like a weird dichotomy, you know, uh, of sometimes they really surprise you with the things they're capable and the instructions they understand. And then sometimes they really surprise you with the things they don't seem capable of. Um, but you know, I think a lot of people, when they meet these people who are nonverbal, they might assume that there's not much going on um, inside that head. Um, yeah, you know, I yet with you someone. you were really like blown away by this experience recently, weren't you? Uh,
1: yeah. So, um, you know, I, I use the the words non-speaking and not nonverbal because, you know, nonverbal means without words. And a lot of these guys, you know, they, they have words, but it's just a disconnect between mind and body so you know and it's these these guys they they write short stories they, they write poems and you know when something is put on text there's nothing else to judge on but by you know the characters are putting on you know the paper or the screen and you know it's like you know imagine you know if you had a pen pal you're exchanging letters you know and like oh this person's so cool look at all these interests that they have they're you know they write so eloquently you know and like we're having such a great time and then imagine you're you're going to to meet up with them and then they show up they have you know they've got someone who's there to work with them and you know they're they're jumping up and down arms flailing you know making vocalizations and you would look at them and be like there's no way that these two people are are the same person but like it, it is and that's you know something that i've been to exposed to recently and have been looking at, at more about, and, you know, from the research that, you know, I've seen, they're saying that up to a third of, you know, non-speaking individuals are actually, you know, have the ability to communicate through a letter board.
0: That's, that's really incredible. That's a really incredible uh, story.
1: Yeah, no, it's, and I got to, I got to see it firsthand where, you know, uh, one of the people that I'm working with, you know, his 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 whole family is so great, so supportive. And, you know, and they they really believe and, you know, and not that there's like anything to believe. It, it is what it actually is. She gave me the letter board it was like quiz him. And, you know, I'm thinking, I'll, I'll I'll catch this guy. You know, I, you know, uh, mom asked, you know, started it off, you know what pet does Clark have? Or, you know, wrote C-A-T. And I'm like, all right, what's her name? And he wrote A-T-T-I-E. And I was like, all right, what's my other pet? And mom goes, you have another pet? I was like, I don't really talk about, you know, about the other pet too much. But one of the things is, you know, when he's, I give him a couple of minutes in the shower to just kind of, you know, like be in the water and with COVID and all that, I have to order my stuff ahead of time. And so I'll just pull up my phone, you know, two minutes, I order a bag of crickets. And, you know, I tell them, you know, because I, I always talk to my guys because you always have to presume competence. You have to presume that there's someone in there who just is struggling to, to communicate. So, you know, I'm, I'm always talking. and I'm like, hey, I'm just pulling out my phone, not ignoring you. I just got to buy some crickets to feed my gecko. Right. Just like in passing, I ask him, you know, what's my other pet? And he writes G-E-C-K-O. And I was stunned. He knew everything up, you know, he knew the model of my car, the make of my car. He knows like every, He knows I got my bumper fixed like he hears something and it's it's there. It's it's committed to memory.
0: That's that's really impressive. And I think it really goes to show, uh, you know, something we were talking about earlier that you just you can't make any assumptions when you meet someone with autism.
1: No, not 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 at all. You always have to assume, you know. That there's someone in there just you know living every day just trying to communicate and and to comprehend so i'm hoping that you know like, that more exposure gets done on this and that you know we start to introduce these methods of communicating to our non-speaking people out there
0: that's awesome thanks for sharing that clark no worries
1: yeah yeah no and it's crazy because like you know and uh they 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 tell you about these experiences of like being around staff who just talk about them in front of them like i couldn't imagine doing that with someone who is speaking you know just like you know someone you know like imagine speaking about like their behaviors or something like right in front of them yeah and crazy because there's so many of these people that like haven't had their voice discovered yet who are going through this every day and they're having staff you know like being unprofessional in front of them, and like I've seen this, and just like, yeah, no, it's just it's unreal. So there's definitely there, there's there's a lot that needs to to change when it comes to like you know the the diagnoses and like and even not just diagnosing because a lot of people think that that's kind of like that's it, right? Oh, we see this, this is who they are. Like there's there's a lot of avenues that still need to be taken to see what these you know what these people are really capable of doing
0: yeah it really seems like a very very under-researched field and i feel like it's just starting to explode now this this area of research and at the same time i feel like it's giving us this false sense of confidence that we fully understand it when i feel like we we really truly don't have a, a good grasp of this topic and i'm i'm honestly a little skeptical of anyone who who seems to think they do um but I think you also raised a good point just about, you know, standards of professionalism. I, and I think this just, you know, we're talking, you're talking more specifically about, you know, people who work with people with autism, especially nonverbals, um, about that understanding that you can't talk about them in front of them if there's an issue. I think that applies to teaching, too. Like, you should never talk about a behavior, um, especially in a condescending way, about any, any person you have any authority over. And I don't even think it can be appropriate always um, behind closed doors, like if you're in the staff room. It's personally, it's a pet peeve of mine to to talk about a student in a negative way in the staff room. Um, That's not meant to come across as a judgmental way, but I think, you know, when we're, which we want to remain neutral or positive about the people we work with. And I feel like part of how we do that is by not, you know, creating these self-fulfilling prophecies of, you know, complaining about them or venting about them or putting them in these negative um, projections in our own head. Yeah,
1: and honestly, like, in in my opinion, I think like you know when my clients and all that when, when they have behaviors, I I think of those situations as like some of the most like intimate moments you can have with them because like you're really seeing them like let out hootly you know like it's uh it's it's hard to it's hard to put into words, but like it's you know when they're going through a very difficult situation, that's when they need you the most and you know that's when you kind of have to like put on your best work you know and it's just it's a lot more than like say you have you know a kid who's 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 being violent at the moment it's more than just going in there you know going hands-on it's you know it's it's going through all the stages of the escalation it's the debriefing after it's you know it's setting limits there's so much that that goes on that like you know it's so when I hear people just being like, oh, you know, this person went off and I just went in there and, you know, grabbed them and I'm like, no, nah, it's, it's a lot more than than that. And when you take it seriously, in my opinion, when you take a behavior and like treat it as, as this like intimate moment between like a staff and a client, you know, a moment where you can really like understand each other a little bit more than you know, I found in my experience that like, you know, occurrences of behaviors with the same with the same client and staff you know started to go down.
0: Yeah I, I agree with you and I, I feel like when you work with these type of clients and I don't want to I want to say that you know not all um, students or people with autism have these extreme behaviors and not all people who show extreme behaviors have autism but at, at the same time I feel like when you work with someone who has these extreme behaviors uh, there's a difference in your relationship with that person, that student, that client before and after seeing it. Um so and I, I feel like it's just it's uh it's partly it's a it's a trust thing and a vulnerability thing because they're showing you themselves that they're most vulnerable when they have that behavior. Um and your your relationship based off how you handle that situation is gonna be forever changed. Um, yeah but let's let's if we you don't mind, let's back up for a second here because I feel like we're talking with this assumption that the audience really understands what we're talking about. But I feel like so many people might not understand. Um, wh- how, how would you define extreme behavior? Uh,
1: for me personally, what I consider an extreme behavior is I'm, I'm, I'm a safety guy. So honestly, anything that has to like if it compromises their own safety is the safety of someone else. That's when I start to consider it extreme You know, obviously the people we work with, they all express themselves in different ways. You know, like some people like to run around, some people like to climb, stuff, some people like to jump and, you know, that's, that's fine. That's, that's who they are. But like when things start to get unsafe and away from that, you know, that baseline behavior that they normally show, that's when I start to, you know, that's when I start to, you know, put in uh, my training, try to deescalate, try to, you know, redirect And that's when I started to kind of, you know, like pull my guard up, you know, thinking that, you know, maybe there's something coming.
0: Yeah, I think I think I have a a slightly different definition in my head. But I think, you know, oftentimes when you talk to people, they they're understanding what extreme behavior might be like a student swearing at staff or, you know, threatening staff in some way or um, getting in a lot of schoolyard fights. And although none of that behavior is positive, obviously. I don't, I don't consider it extreme until, like, as you've pointed out, that there's a serious safety risk. Um, and I, especially, I think, you know, most kids have it in their head that, you know, maybe they'll get in a schoolyard fight, but they're not going to go out there and, like, punch a teacher in the face. But uh, you and I have both worked with large numbers of students who would do that type of behavior. And that's sort of where I, I start to draw a blind differentiation, when they're willing to violently attack staff or themselves. You know, we've dealt with some self-harmers, too. Um, yeah,
1: If you look at schools, I mean, like, you know, how many how many kids get into fights? You know, it's it's,
0: you know, unfortunately,
1: it's almost like a normalized thing. But like, as you said, when things start to get outside the norm and kids are now going after staff and stuff like that, that's when, you know, that's when it starts to get extreme. Like even growing up in school, like, you know, even the biggest bullies wouldn't even bat an eye at a teacher.
0: No, I mean. I, I was uh, not a well-behaved kid when I was in school. I was constantly getting in fights, and I think uh, I ca- once in grade two, I think I kicked a teacher in the shin, <laughs> and yeah. uh, that's like the most aggressive thing I ever did to a, a teacher ever in my life, um, and I think most schools don't have any students who would behave aggressively towards a staff member, but I think some of that's starting to change too, because I think part of the reason why was we swept it under the rug in the past. We if a student was aggressive towards staff, they were just expelled or they were stuck in a special education school that was offsite where no other teacher or student would ever or parent would ever see this behavior. And I think we are starting to see more schools switching to having um, classrooms in their school for these students or having CIWs work one on one in a class with these students rather than um, just hiding it. And I feel like some of that was the purpose. I think the education system to some extent was embarrassed by the existence of these kids because they when you have a student who will do things like punch a teacher in the face or you know try and self-harm there comes an inevitable moment where um, staff members have to contain that child using physical uh, restraints and uh, I think to some extent we wanted to pretend that that was a world in which that never happened so we just kind of like swept it under the rug. We put them in special schools and I think that's starting to change. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. You know, you know, like I was saying, like growing up, you know, I, there was a kid, you know, who swore at a teacher once, you know, got immediately suspended and all that. And, you know, working on all these schools, kids are just casually swearing what their teachers now. So, you know, I I definitely see that, you know, things are changing, times are changing and, what we consider to be socially acceptable is definitely changing so as things change so will you know the the extremes the more the more we are lax around you know our rules and regulations the more further away from that i think we're going to start to see you know some of these kids go
0: yeah well let's let's if you're comfortable with it let's talk for a moment about some of like the things you've seen like what are some of the worst behaviors you've seen if you don't mind sharing
1: Uh, do you mean like specifically in the school setting or
0: we could do both why don't we just differentiate you could say what's like the worst type of things you've seen in a school and what's the worst type of things you've seen you know just with working with um, um, people who have um, exceptionalities
1: Uh, so I don't know some of the stuff with uh, you know in schools uh, you know just off the top of my head I had pretty much a kid tell me that he was going to follow me home he was going to stab me in the neck with a broken pencil and then rape my family while you know he was uh while i would like die watching and in my head i was just like i couldn't imagine ever like anyone saying something like that to like a person of authority at a school and it just came off so casually and i was just like wow that's you know, obviously I had to get to work at that at that moment. But like it's, you know, with schools, it's more I've seen about like, you know, this like kids threatening and like talking to teachers, mm. I've you know, uh, with, with stuff like that, you know, uh, attempted self-harm uh, or I had another kid, you know, grab a cord, try to strangle himself in front of his parents and staff Um uh, Yeah, I'd say I'd say I'd say those two are the ones that, you know, stick out at the most. You know, fortunately, a lot of the uh, a lot of the schools I've been to, uh, you know, it's it's hard because as you know, I'm a I'm a large male with a you know, big beard tattoos. So I don't get to see a lot of like the extreme behaviors, though, the extreme behaviors I do see tend to be some of the most extreme
0: Mm -hmm. because they're breaking through that barrier
1: yeah so like like at schools right like i you know i look very different than a lot of the staff at schools so like when when, when it comes to the schools i'd say those are definitely the worst because a lot of, a lot of the kids like they you know they see me and they're like oh it's a it's a guy he looks like this so oh, he looks you know the way he looks and like they they tend to you know not you know not stray too far from the line when i'm there yeah but but at the group home when you know when you're there 24/7, and it's not just like a you know like a 8:30 to 3:30 sort of thing, you know, like that's that's when I see some of the uh, some of the worst behaviors. I had someone you know like I've I've had people threaten to kill me. I've had people try to kill me. I've had people literally kick through um, vehicle windows while on the highway, uh, and just like like everything, I've had someone attack me with a brick. Uh, I, yeah, just people try to, you know, kill me with a fork before, uh, just a, so many, so many, uh, when it comes to the outside of the school experiences.
0: Yeah. I just, you know, similarly, I think I've been punched in the face, um, working with these type of people in these types of behaviors more times than I can count. I've been spit on, I've been bitten. I've been sent to the hospital a couple of times, for injuries I sustained, um i've been hit with desks and chairs i've had kids threaten to stab me with scissors i had a kid once hold up a scissors a pair of scissors an inch away from my eye and uh threatened to stab me with it and i mean to be fair that was actually my very first day working in this field and i thought the kid was bluffing and um i didn't do anything i didn't have any training at that point i didn't back away from the student which was all wrong and i remember the person next to me just saying to me afterwards, "Well." that was really dumb. You shouldn't have done that. You should have immediately stepped away from that student because that kid might have just stabbed you in the eye. Yeah. Uh, and I just remember thinking like no way a kid would stab me in the eye, but I'd literally been in that school for about 5 minutes. Um and it it's just uh it's when you think of like the, those types of extremes like it, it's just it feels like it's no comparison to the the normal day behaviors of a, a kid say swearing at you or Uh, telling you off or just refusing to follow instructions I kind of put them in these categories of there's challenging behaviors and challenging behaviors are in my mind are just um, students or clients just refusing to follow reasonable instructions Um, or you know being rude for lack of a better term Um, and then extreme behaviors are ones that just they present like a threat to your safety or other people's safety. oh yeah so um, that being said like what what do you think are the most important things for people when they're considering these behaviors?
1: Uh, what advice I've,
0: would you give someone?
1: Uh, honestly, like I'm a I'm a I'm a big observer. I can I can go work a shift and sit in the corner of the room and I'll just spend all day watching my guys. You know, I'm a I'm a fan of like you know having all the information. You know, like you know I'll 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 read all the uh, you know all their notes, their binders and all that sort of stuff but nothing beats actually spending time with them seeing you know what makes them tick what motivates them what gets them upset and then just like really knowing what their habits and their routines are because once you know that you can start like you can spot a difference from a, you know from a mile away you can start to see when things start to escalate when things don't start you know like when they're, when they're going the other way they might be feeling sad So it's, you know, it's definitely a big help because, you know, like, you know, fires are most easily extinguished when they're small, right? So I just, you know, it's a, I do like a lot of upkeep, you know, checking in on them, seeing, you know, if like something's off, trying to figure out, you know, what the root of that issue is and then squashing that right away, you know, and uh, I'd say, I'd say prevention is my number one thing that like when I work, I'm just running prevention, like left, right and center.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Um, uh, Clark and I, we used to work in a, a group home together for autistic boys. That's how I met Clark. And uh, when you first meet Clark, um, it, it you you might have thought he wasn't um, the most engaged person. But <laughs> what you don't see is what's going on in the background. And that he just, he understood his clients really well. And that he was, you know, trying to find those perfect ways to de-escalate clients. And I can tell you, whenever he wasn't there with me, I had to work a lot harder because, uh, uh, I had to be, um, that person who was always behind the scenes trying to deescalate, um, clients. And, you know, sometimes there's very small warning signs that you would never as an outsider person recognize. And I, I agree with you that so much of this field is just, it's learning how people tick. And it's, I think that's actually what I love about this field is the problem solving aspect is it's, there are no one size fits all you know uh, solutions to to people you're like you you're just you're trying to find that magic combination of things that help support that person and make them tick and it can be knowing w- when they have triggers and knowing that you have to distract them during that time or knowing that you have to have some kind of intervention like exercise put in during that time it can be knowing that when they are upset that these are the things they need to do to to bring them back down to earth and calm them down and i i really strongly believe that those that solution to each person is going to be completely unique and sometimes i hear people saying uh, a person is impossible but there's no there's no warnings there's no triggers there's no prediction for it or nah. that there's nothing you can do to make this person behave and I, I really don't buy that to be honest nah,
1: me neither. yeah and you know sometimes like the strategies they seem a little off or they seem like you know oh you would do that like I don't know, you know, I'm not going to mention names, but, you know, there was an incident, I mean, you had earlier uh, or like, you know, late last year where we had an individual who was like, you know, wanting attention, threatening, you know, and uh, and I literally just pulled out my phone and I just ignored everything he was saying and just, you know, kept reminding you, hey, you know what, as much as you think or you're telling me that you don't like us and that people don't like you. I know it's the opposite. You think we're pretty cool and we all like having you around. And then, you know, after about five minutes of that, I don't know if you remember, but you started crying, apologized, and that all came from me doing something that I think a lot of people wouldn't be open to doing just because it's kind of like, you know, outside of the box, like, oh, this is a person who's like, you know, in the need for attention and like I did the complete opposite. So I, I, I'm i one of those people where I'm open to to everything as as long as it works.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think as long as it's um, professional and safe, too. Yeah, obviously. yeah, obviously, yeah, of course. Just just putting the obvious caveat. Yeah, I yeah, no, I,
1: I wouldn't ever do anything. Like, obviously, if that, you know, tactic wasn't working, I would have abandoned it really quickly, but, you know, it, it, it worked, and, you know, it's, you know, it just goes back to the whole, like, finding out what makes, you know, these guys tick and then using, you know, using what you have with you and around you to, uh, you know, incorporate those, uh, those methods.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know about you personally. I think, you know, the biggest thing is prevention as I would, as I would agree with you. What would you say is the next biggest thing?
1: The next, uh, next biggest thing I would say is, you know, if you got to go hands on, I'd say that is also super important, you know, cause now you're, you're handling someone who is, you know, at their most vulnerable. And, you know, unfortunately, in this field, we have a lot of people who, you know, will abuse those situations as a means to, to get back or to like instill their power. But like, you know, for me, you know, I believe, you know, you you follow whatever, you know, the school of thought that, you know, you're going in, you know, whether it be CPI, SMG or UMAP. You go by the book and, you know, you you also, you know, there's you can't go too hard. But at the same time, like you, you can't go too soft. And, you know, I understand why a lot of people, you know, would be lax when going hands on because, you know, like, you know, we're in this field because we care about these guys and going hands on. No one wants to do that. Right. Because once you once you do that, you're at the extreme of extremes. you literally have to contain someone in order to keep them or somebody else safe. But, you know, but if you go in and you use, you know, the, the appropriate technique, you you apply it well. You know, it's the these techniques aren't in place to be the most comfortable. They're in place to keep everyone safe. So with that in mind, you go in there, you do your technique, you know, and you follow after with a debrief and, you know, you just, you know, go by the book, make sure everyone's safe and all and all of that. You can really instill between, you know, the staff and the individual that, you know, like that's not going to work. And, you know, it could happen only once or maybe it takes a couple of times. But, you know, depending on the individual, they, they will learn what the what the limit is. And in my experience, like with the clients I've had to, the clients that I've had for over a longer period of time, I haven't had to re-engage in going hands-on many times because, you know, that, you know, that limit had been set and, and, and it works, you know, like they get away, they're not hurt. I get off, I'm not hurt. And everyone just kind of, you know, we go about our day and, you know, and the other important thing too, is not, to not carry that with you, you know, just cause a, a guy tries to punch you in the face. You had to go, you had to hold them. Like it's, it's fine. Like I'll, I'll, I'll restrain a guy and I'll play video games with him 10 minutes later.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that's a really good point. Forgiveness is, is really important within these types of behaviors. Um, you, I, I, uh, many, many years ago, I worked with someone who would, spit on me and bite me every single day, but, and that was really challenging for me to work with. But at the same time, like you can't go in there, upset about what happened yesterday or five minutes ago you have to go in there and find the positive and sometimes you have to tell yourself what you like about this person um just so, so you can remain positive because that's that's the reality like you can't you can't go in there with those those negative attitudes and i think that's basically in part a, a thing of professionalism um you know but I, I i also what i hear you saying really there is that consistency and safety and procedure are really important when you're working with um anyone who might propose a, a safety risk to your to yourself or others
1: yeah i yeah i'm 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 a big fan of that because then you create something that you know as a as a person who works on the cell i'll I'll go into a place only for one day or I'll go in just for a week or a, c- a certain period of time, so I always try to work and create something that anyone else can do. You know, it's nothing that I do, you know, with the clients that I work with is unachievable by anyone else. You know, like, yes, I may get a couple of points for being a big, strong, you know, sometimes scary looking dude. But at the same time, like, you know, like I, I, you know, like anyone who knows me knows I like I ruined that image within the first five seconds of me opening my mouth. You know, like you've seen me at work. I'll, I'll run around. I'm silly all that sort of stuff and that just kind of like you know when I have to be serious if anything being the silly you know silly guy kind of creates that distance where I don't have to go all the way to 10 to get someone's attention because I'm always running out of two sometimes all I gotta do is bump it up to a four and that's enough to to snap them out
0: of it yeah I agree with that and I think some of that too is relationship building you know I think Relationship building to me is so key when you're working with these people. Oftentimes when you work with someone who's had extreme behaviors in the past, they have this sort of like self-fulfilling prophecy in their own mind that they're going to do something wrong and that people are going to get angry at them and not forgive them. And uh, that's going to ruin that relationship. So they kind of go in there with the expectation that like, I can't do this. I can't maintain a positive relationship with this person. And I, I feel like I, that's, you have to almost prove to people that no matter what, you're, you're in their court you're on their side you know yeah. it it might not be that um that doesn't mean that you let them do whatever they want uh where whether it be in a group home setting or a classroom setting but at the same time you also have to you have to actually convince people that you believe in them that yeah. you like them you genuinely like them and it, whether you you like them or don't like them you almost have to just actually say no i like this person i actually like this person i work with no matter how challenging or um tough that situation can be working with that person
1: yeah that's why i believe in you know you gotta you gotta really engage with the guys and that's why i always try to be like silly play games and you know just
0: go on trips
1: and stuff like that because like you know if you if you look at it like in a 24-hour day you know seven day week you know all of that how much time is actually spent in those extreme behaviors not not very long like the average containment is like a couple of minutes you know in a 12 hour shift you still have like 11 almost that full 12 hours to like tell your people and like show them that like nah, man like we're you know we're all good we can all have fun and you know let's not let this incident define our day or week who we are or anything like that so you know that's why i'm always you know i'm always playing around like i'm i I try really hard to be you know that approachable person the person that people can you know can talk to and mess around with and you know, like I've had clients like do things to me where I've had like other staff just be like, Oh, do you need help? And I'm like, no, like we're we're just playing around. He knows what the limits are. And, you know, we're just we're we're just messing around. We're just acting like, you know, any any people our age would be acting like.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, I, I think part of this is, is going back to a little bit, though. I think you talked about this earlier, but we kind of didn't talk about it directly. Is that de-escalation piece. You know, yeah. prevention and de-escalation to me are not really the same thing. De-escalation is, you know, when we already see this person is starting to wind up, how do we bring them back down? Because as much as you talk about when you have to to do a containment or a physical intervention, I know from firsthand experience working with you that probably 99% of behavior incidents you are able to uh, stop before they turn into an actual extreme behavior because you have those de-escalation skills in peace, so... You
1: You know, when it comes to de-escalation, it's, you know, a lot of the times I'm just like, hey, look, we've been through this a bunch of times. Right. And you remember how, you know, those times have have ended out. Right. So let's just skip all the hard stuff. Let's figure out what's wrong and, you know, let's move past it. And a lot of times that seems to work. And, you know, and, and if it doesn't work and then that's when we get to the whole thing with the individuals, right? Like, you know, is it an individual where, you know, I have to try to put in a reinforcer or do I have to, like, you know, see about taking a reinforcer away? It's it it all for me, it all goes back to understanding the client of what makes them tick. And once you have that, you know, I find just the escalation just, you know, taking out different tools from the tool bag.
0: Yeah, I, I find that. I find that that's part of uh, how when you're once your relationship has changed with that client or that uh, student the first time, uh, it it feels very different. The next time you can have that more honest conversation and just be like, I know you don't want to have a behavior. I know you don't want to go through that because it could be in some ways it can be both traumatizing for both, all parties involved. It can be traumatizing yeah. for the person who has to be contained because they're being dangerous. And it can be traumatizing for the person who has to do the containment. Yeah. Um I've seen uh on multiple occasions staff members cry after they had to contain someone. And I think some of that was just the emotional stress of the situation just when it's over they're so relieved that that moment's over. Um but you know I also think that a lot of what you do is the the humor and the di- distraction elements too.
1: Yeah, you know that's uh, like I said, you know, if if you know, I always try to go with the whole, you know, least intrusive sort of you know sort of way so if i can you know make them forget about why they're upset or what's making them angry i'll 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 shoot for that you know if i can get them laughing uh, i'm i I try to just like you know push through whatever it is you know whether it be you know somebody wants you know to pour extra you know like caesar dressing or whatever on their salad and you know we (laughs) Put a certain amount out you know because we still have to follow you know meal plans and calories and what have you it's you know sometimes i'll just like crack a joke you know and then you know the laugh and i'm like all right you know let's not do this come on let's go sit down eat your food and then you know a bit of compromise goes a long way you know like if you want a little more right come back we'll give you some you know extra veggies and i'll give you a little bit more it's you know a lot of the times you know people think that it has to be you know, your way or the highway, but, you know, working with these guys, I find, you know, goes so long.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think always looking for that least intrusive option, always, you know, trying to follow that path of doing, you know, thinking about how best you can avoid any conflicts with the client is is always important obviously you can't make um safety compromises or um core value compromises you know but at the same time like little things can be negotiated upon i've heard i've know some people are of the opinion that you should never negotiate but um because it reinforces the idea that these people can use um uh, threats of violence or violence to get something they want but at the same time i think you have, to, you have to be a human being and use your, your personal judgment sometimes, too. Yeah, like you, you I, pointed out, like, what's an extra yeah. drop of salad dressing, right? Yeah, uh-huh. and you're that's, still
1: getting compliance. You're still getting them to go and do something before. So for me, it's not like, oh, I'm just giving you extra so you don't get into a physical altercation. It's, no, all right, you know, you're asking for something that's reasonable. So, you know, let's, you know, eat almost like you got to earn it you gotta you know you gotta all right show me this and this and then good and then i'll i'll give you what it is you're looking for so that way we both walk away with something you know and then hopefully after enough times the individual starts to say you know like i don't have to keep threatening just you know i if i can work with staff then i i can get all the things that i want
0: yeah yeah and sometimes i like to to just phrase it in that way too that like Okay, you know that we want to help you. We want to we want to give you the things that you want. So like, let's work together to make this a positive experience, rather than you know going down this negative cycle that we've gone down before. I I, I don't know about you personally. I think the the keys are you know first relationship building, then de escalation. Um, um, I, I should say with relationship building, I think prevention is in, built into that you know, so relationship building, prevention, then de-escalation. And then I would just say last consistency. I think it yeah. can be a big mistake if, you know, let's say you have a client or a student who has uh, autism or has extreme tendencies of behaviors for them to, to treat every behavior incident completely separate, because then you sort of reinforce this idea that they don't know what's going to happen if they do something really violent. And then that leads them, I think, more to be more tempted to try repeatedly to do the same thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely.
0: Cool. Well, uh, I think this was a good talk on behavior. Do you um why don't we move a little bit on more onto the autism specific side of this? Is that okay with yeah. you? Yeah, sure. Awesome. So uh how would you how do you see uh or I should say How would you define autism to the average person? Oh, man, that's it's It's a question.
1: Yeah. You know, and like I said, you know, I'm I'm working with, you know, someone who is non-speaking but can still communicate with a letter board. And, you know, within the last couple of weeks, like I've, you know, starting to see this community of these non-speakers who can still communicate. And, you know, for somebody else, it's like imagine being like in a coma. You can still hear everything going on. You can still th- see things going on, but it's that, you know, connection between mind and body is not there. Right. So I've been, you know, I've been reading blogs from, you know, people with autism who are non-speak and define autism. And all of that. So, and it's it's. I've come to find that it's almost like they they all experience autism differently. It could be you know, you know, over sensory. It could be like a social thing. There's so much that like goes into it. I find that like it's hard to give it one definition, especially when it has such a broad spectrum. You know, we have someone who is you know might have a little bit of issues. You know in social situations, be classified as, you know, someone with autism and then somebody else who requires, you know, full support from multiple people from the second they wake up to the second they go to bed. So I don't know. I, I always try to work without like, without definitions. Cause I feel like when you start to, to put in the definition that, you know, you're putting the people you work with within, you know, within a box and I don't, I don't like doing that. You know, I just kind of I I take the individuals, like, literally, like, as as individuals, as, you know, with their their own unique struggles, and that presents differently amongst, honestly, like, with every person you work with. So, I I don't know, like, when it comes to a definition, I just, you know, just someone who needs a little bit of help.
0: Yeah, I love that definition. I know the DSM defines it as an intellectual disability pertaining to the social realm, but uh, that's such a broad definition, and I, I feel like we could almost define like a, a quarter of the population to have some level of struggles with social interactions, right? Um, but obviously, we need to be more specific than that. Um, and it, it's it's so interesting. You bring up the sensory issue. I mean, oftentimes I think people think of sensory issues being like, for, like of the forefront of people with autism. But I've met people who have diagnosed with autism have, like, zero sensory issues of any kind.
1: Yeah, no, and and that's the craziest thing about this field is that, like, like, you know, there's just new things keep on popping up, and we're just, like, learning more and more, and there are more exceptions to the rule, and, you know, so it's, I don't know what the solution is, but, you know, all I can do is just, you know, keep working with my guys a day at a time, and, you know, just try to, to help each individual
0: as they come. That's awesome. So what are some of the things that you you help um, people with autism? I mean, we spent the first half of this interview like hyper focused on behavior just because I felt in some ways it was the thing that um, a lot of people might not have any experience with and it might be unique to them. But at the same time, it's, it's such a small part, I would say, of working with people with autism. And like I said earlier, not all people with autism have extreme behaviors.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'll actually break it down because I've I've got a couple of things on the go right now, especially with COVID. Like, you know, everyone's cooped up and I find that my clients kind of like, you know, need the help more than ever. So, um, yeah, I would say, uh, you know, like, so, you know, I'm currently, you know, working at a school. So with the school, it's just it's a lot of routine. It's about keeping the routine establishing the routine and every day we try to push a little bit more to learn something new or to you know work on a a goal that's you know specified to the individual i also i'm i'm doing you know something else where it's i'm literally there almost like an older brother sort of sort of figure i'm just there to spend some time you know hopefully be a good role model and you know to just you know kill a couple of hours and to just like give them a sense of you know life before COVID. Uh, I got something else where it's just like 100% respite. So for me, that just means it's all client driven, right? If they want to play video games, we'll play video games because the idea is, is respite for their caregivers, you know, whether it be their parents or the grandparents, you know, that is strictly, you know, uh, the, the focus It's we're just here, we're going to have a good time and we're just going to, you know, we're going to give everyone a break. And then I also am doing behavioral support therapy, you know, several times a week. And that is, you know, a little bit more intensive. That's, you know, we're running activities, go, go, go. I'm, you know, seeing how they are, you know, you know, implementing breaks when needed. We we're working towards specific goals and it's, it's a little bit more intensive than some of the other stuff that I do.
0: Yeah. Um, what about work with hygiene? Do you ever have to help clients with hygiene or, yeah, yeah, you know, uh,
1: yeah, so some of the clients I work with, uh, you know, I it's sometimes just, you know, go shower, they go shower, uh, you know, or it's, you know, you go in there and you got to model on yourself, you know, all right, let's oh, wash your armpit, you know, scrub, 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 next armpit, scrub, scrub. Uh, some of the other ones you kind of have to do hand over hand, you know, where you put the, you know. The, the soap in one hand the brush in the uh in the other and you kind of help them some you know and then i've also done the full-on support where we're the ones who have to bathe them
0: yeah that must be a, a really hard part to be honest
1: yeah but you know for for, for me what gets me you know it gets me through because like let's you know let's be honest you know it's not the most pleasing of sights sometimes or the most pleasant of smells but i just you know i would hate to be you know covered in my own filth and not be able to do anything of it so I'd hate for any of the people that I work with to, to have that same feeling
0: so I just try and, to I'm, keep them clean. and I'm sure the parents of these people or the the siblings of these people who are there even the biological caregivers are are grateful for it they don't you know it's it's people don't realize but it's kind of similar to working in a nursing home if you went to your nursing home you wouldn't want to find out that your your grandma hadn't been bathed you know
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And I am, I'm super fortunate to to be working with such great families right now. And, you know, you know, you can have experiences on on both ends of that, you know, I've had, you know, I'm having such great experiences. Now, I had a super terrible experience in October. But, you know, it's, it's very nice to see, you know, these, these family members and caregivers really appreciate the work that you're doing
0: yeah yeah for sure well i I really want to thank you um clark for for sharing your experiences and your insights here. You were very open and honest with uh our audience here and uh, i I'm glad the audience gets to have this uh conversation because I feel like a lot of what happens with um, uh people who have to have violent behaviors or people who have autism. Is it, it's just, it doesn't get talked about. And yeah, you've talked about it in a real way and given the audience a real intimate look in that. So
1: yeah, nice and I mean, we all have that. our bad moments. Just, you know, we usually don't have an audience that goes with it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Well, thanks uh, Clark and to our listeners. Thank you for joining us on Pedagogy Non Grata. If you like the podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe. Um, if you want to hear more about uh, Pedagogy Non Grata, you can follow us on Facebook, Or you can check out our website for our articles at www.pedagogianongrata.com. Or if you want to buy some more lesson plans or smart board games, you can go to Teachers Pay Teachers and search up our brand name. One final note, I just want to let the audience know about an exciting exciting announcement I have. On March 15th, I will be recording a debate between Dr. Bowers and Dr. Garforth on the subject of the reading wars. Uh, Dr. Bowers is going to be arguing for the... Um, Systemic or Systematic Instruction of Phonics, and Dr. Bowers is going to be arguing against. I'm really excited for this, and I can't wait to share this with you guys. It will be up either on the 15th or the 16th, depending on how long uh, the interview slash debate process goes. Um, And until next time, folks, that's it for now.